Yeah. I think our guest did a great job with Zip. Thank you. Sorry, let me... Uh, there we go. Um, bear with me. Um, you got to love technology. At this point, it's, ten, it's my, uh, my notes are on Microsoft Office, and it's at this moment asking me questions like, do you want to upgrade to this? I'm like, no, I'm in the middle of preaching. I don't want to upgrade to anything. <laughs> so bear with me to, to open up what I was working on. Um, <laughs> sorry, it has signed me out, and now I can't get my notes. Sneaky devil! <laughs> Woo! Ah, here we go. Okay. That reference does not say that Microsoft is the devil. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making that reference. Anyway, good to be here this morning. Uh, last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And it said this, our, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we looked about that and we talked about where the real battle is. And as Zip illustrated here, that the real battle really wasn't between Zip and his mom, right? The real battle was between the devil trying to get Zip to be disobedient, right? And so uh, he, we needed to recognize that. And so the real battle is against evil. It's not against people although it manifests itself with people, right? So uh, the devil wants to affect our thinking and thereby our belief by twisting the truth, distorting it, blinding us, and those kinds of things, uh, uh, blinding us to the truth. And, and that truth uh, is found in God and in God's word, right? And by, when he blinds us to the truth or he gets us to believe a lie by distorting or twisting, we end up acting on what we believe, right? Which ends up creating the conflict, whether internally between us and God or between us and other people, right? Like, Zip believed that fun was more important than obedience. And the truth is obedience, uh, that's not true, that obedience is important. And so, believing the lie, so on, you get it. That was, you can go uh, listen to last week's if you want more detail. But um, what we learned was that to guard ourselves from the devil's schemes, we position ourselves in Christ, which Paul describes as putting on the armor of God, that there are things that God has given us that we can position ourselves in, which is take a stance in, and when we take a stance in these things, it, uh, it protects us like armor from the devil's schemes. Um, now, I know that uh, there's other things that the armor of God does as well, but when we're talking about fighting an unseen battle, uh, that's the armor of God. So this positioning ourselves in Christ is an internal position. It, it protects us from the devil wreaking havoc with our thinking, 
with us knowing the truth and these kinds of things. It's, it's that perspective or stance uh, that we choose to stay in. Right? So we choose to believe the truth, which is the belt of truth, right? To be uh, champions of truth, uh, right? We choose to believe and put on the helmet of salvation that, that we're citizens of heaven because of what Christ has done. It's a, it's a stance we believe in and so on. You can go, but is there an external response to evil? If last week we talked about an internal response, is there external things that we should be actively doing uh, instead of just inwardly stancing and not. And, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, Paul told the, the church in Corinth this, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. Right? So we're here, but the war that we're fighting, we don't fight like the world does. He said this, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So Paul is eluding and illustrating, say, hey, uh, to what he said in Ephesians, we fight an unseen battle. And the weapons we fight with in this unseen battle are not the same weapons that the world fights their battles with. They're different. And so my question today is, how do we fight the unseen battle with evil? fighting the real battle. Now, there are other things as, as I go uh, through these four things today I want to show you. You can say, well, Pastor, what about this, what about this, and what about that? And I would say uh, we're focusing on the unseen battle portion of our fight, okay? So uh, for time's sake, too, I mean, we could have a whole theological semester on divulge and how do we fight the devil and what tools and all those kinds of things. And I don't think you want to be here till 6 o'clock tonight. So, I'm going to show you four things that you probably, uh, at some point or even currently, would not see that as a weapon. That clearly, God has given us as a weapon to fight the evil. So, uh, first one we're going to look at is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Very familiar passage of scripture. You've probably heard it. If my people, this is God speaking to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, what is God saying to Solomon? He's saying if my people would abandon their wicked ways and if they will turn to me, right, something will happen. I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. So the first weapon that we have is the weapon of repentance. You go, I would never think of repentance as a weapon against evil. Well, God just told Solomon that uh, if you read prior to that, uh, all kinds of chaos going on. If all these things happen in your land, this country, and he talks about like when the locust comes and and eats things up, when disease comes, when natural disasters come, when these things happen, if my people will repent, which the definition of repentance is a change in the inner man or woman, that's gender neutral, expressed in turning from evil and turning toward God. 
So it's an interchange that ends up expressing itself and turning away from what we were doing and turning towards what God would have us do. The very act of turning from evil and turning towards God resulted in healing. Physically, how is that possible? Because there's something's accomplished in the unseen realm. Right? You're, you're acting this way, you're doing a certain thing, and just by simply turning from that and turning towards God, healing starts happening. Well, something's happened, something has shifted in the unseen world for that to take place, wouldn't you say? Because it doesn't say, turn from that and then start, you know, stitching yourself up, start plowing the ground. I mean, those are, we would do that anyway. But the focus here is on turning and then healing. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. Peter's preaching to the crowd. He says, repent then. Turn from your wickedness. Turn towards God. And he even says here, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. How could a simple act of repenting result in your refreshing, physical refreshment? We understand the piece of, okay, I'm okay with God. My sins will be wiped out for the future. Right? That's in the unseen. That's, but all of a sudden, something I do that's in the unseen will actually affect me physically. It actually brings change in the here. You see that? So there's this repentance. You see, uh, when we repent, it's a, it's a change of the inner person that recognizes evil. That what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm involved in is, is participation in the lie that we talked about last week. I've been deceived. I'm walking in the wrong direction. This isn't leading to life. This isn't good for me. And, and a turning and a recognition of that what God has done is good. That's the internal switch in our inner man. The manifestation of that is the refusal to participate anymore in the deeds of darkness. Right? The external manifestation of that means uh, I now recognize that the way I thought was wrong. It was evil, so I'm no longer going to think that way. My language, how I talked to people, how I treated people was wrong. I'm no longer going to do and say that. I'm turning in this direction. My actions, my involvements were wrong. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm turning towards God. So repentance is a weapon because you no longer allow yourself to participate in evil. The external fruit of repentance is a refusal to participate in or with evil. And that can be in your thoughts, that can be in your language, that can be in your, uh, your actions, and it can also be in your, uh, in your, just your presence around somebody who's doing evil and, and you're okay with it. What do they call that when you're not actually doing the crime, but you're there with somebody doing the crime? What is it? You're an accessory, you're an accomplice. Well, I didn't put my hand on the gun and pull the trigger. Well, you were there and you didn't prevent it. You're an accomplice. That's a, I refuse to participate in what you're about to do. I'm, I'm walking the other way. 
So when we refuse to participate in or with evil, it's a weapon. Wouldn't you say? Because now we're saying, hey, we recognize that's evil, uh, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. That's internally within ourselves. It's also external. The biggest battle against Satan you can do, and we teach our kids this, but sometimes um, we need to practice what we preach, you know. That was kind of a a little bit of a joke, but uh, they tell preachers that, but somehow we know we don't do that with our kids. Anyway, um, when we say to our kids, listen, if you see somebody bullying another kid, you should speak up because that's wrong. So when you're at work and you see somebody being mistreated or taken advantage of or whatever, abused, or any of those kinds of things, uh, repentance would be I'm not going to participate in that evil. And you say, listen, um, I'm not going to participate in how you're treating this person because this is wrong. I'm not going to laugh at that crude joke because that puts that person down. That's all part of repentance. You're refusing to participate. I'm not going to lend myself. I'm not going <laughs> to, awkward laugh. I don't want anyone to know. I'm not, you know, repentance is like, no, I don't want anything to do with this conversation. See ya. I'm out of here. And right there, it's a battle with evil. Because now the people participate and go, I wonder why he's walking away. Are we doing something wrong? And all of a sudden, the question's in their mind. Is there something wrong with this? So repentance is the change in the inner man expressed in turning from evil and turning toward God. And you say, well, what is evil? Right? That's the question. Classify what is evil. Well, you know what? That Paul, kind of, uh, not Paul, Sean mentioned it today. Read your Bible. It outlines it gr- wonderfully. God is good. Everything else is evil. So, uh, you know the old bracelet, WWJD, what would Jesus do? If you go, well, what would Jesus do? Well, if Jesus wouldn't do that, then that's evil. I shouldn't participate in it. First tool we have is the tool of repentance. The second tool we have, Zip Stole My Thunder, is confession. You say, well, how is confession a tool? Well, the word confess means to fully agree and acknowledge openly. Fully agree and acknowledge openly. And acknowledge openly is the important component to confess. Because just because you believe something doesn't mean you've confessed it. And just because you talk about something, if you talk about something you don't believe in, that's not confession either. It's two components. You fully agree with it, and you acknowledge it openly. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, uh, again, famous scriptures, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? For with your heart one believes and are justified, but with your mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, the confession piece has the, the two components to it. It's, a, it's an agreement with, I fully agree with who Christ is and what he came to do, but I also acknowledge it openly. 
I confess it. I'm acknowledging openly that, that I fully agree with this. Now we know that that has two confession, it has two, two, uh, two tracks, so to speak, two pieces that are with it. We see here that just the means of confession leads to salvation. That's an unseen thing, right? Nothing you do, right? You're not doing something. It's just, it's the unseen battle. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I fully agree with that, and I'm saved. A battle has just been won in heaven or in the spiritual realm. We also see this true uh, with Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. When the devil came at Jesus and tempted him, what did Jesus do? He, didn't, he wasn't sinning, but he was confessing scripture. He was saying to the devil, um, no, 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 I fully agree with what God has said and I'm letting you know. He's confessing openly. He's fully agreeing and acknowledging it openly. And we see three times in a row, Jesus uh, professes, he confesses with his mouth what he agrees with, and he does it openly, and after three times, the devil leaves him. So there is a point in time where we have to confess the truth out loud. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be in, in, in an aggressive manner. Like my previous point, if you see somebody being mistreated, you can simply say, um, you're mistreating them, I don't want any part of this. You've just confessed. You fully agree and you've acknowledged it openly, the truth. Hey, this is wrong. Right? You can still uh, 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 be like Christ and confess the truth. So people fully know what you agree with. Now, on the other side, which we're most familiar with, is we can also confess the wrong that we've done, the sins against God and against other people. And this really breaks the power of the devil in relationships. Right? James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Remember, fully agree and acknowledge openly. Zip. Yes, mom. I fully agree that I was wrong and you were right. Not a, I'm just going to say it to make her happy. It's a, it's a belief in your heart that, yep, I, w- I was wrong in this instance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. Man, there's something about this confession, this breaking the power that results in a healing. It's just the confession and a healing occurs. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And now look at 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in James we saw confession and prayer equaled healing. And then we see in 1 John here, confession equals forgiveness and cleansing or purification, being purified. So there's definitely an unseen battle going on that when you confess, when you speak openly, when you acknowledge, whether that be the truth about God or whether it be the wrongs that you've done, a, a purification, a forgiveness, a healing takes place. And uh, if you've ever confessed your faults to somebody, uh, if you've ever come out in the open with something you've been, you've been hiding, there's a sense internally like, 
right? Been hiding this for a while, and I finally talked about it with my loved one or, or whoever. And even though there might be some uh, repairing that needs to happen, inside also you can feel like those first steps have already been done. There's a, there's, a, there's a purification inside, like I'm doing the right thing. And so confession is a weapon. These scriptures show a change as a result of simply confessing, fully agreeing with, and acknowledging whether they be the truths about God or the sins we've done, that results in a healing, a change. That's in the unseen realm. Third thing, in uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 35, I'm going to read it all um, because it's important. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. I have seen, uh, so the third thing, our third weapon is love. And this uh, is a hard scripture. I've seen Christians twist this in all sorts of ways. To not have to really live with the reality of what uh, the writer is saying. Like, let's twist it this way so that we can justify certain actions. Or was he really talking about this? And just put all that aside (laughs) love and we should fully be able to understand this from Christ's example right you see uh, he said to love our enemies and as Zip rightly pointed out if he said love our enemies then uh, it's it's, uh, understood that everybody on the other side of that should be loved as well our family, our neighbors our friends, right that love changes things. In fact, he, in, uh, uh, in Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then in verse 21, or 20 and 21, he writes this, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, he's quoting Jesus here, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to pause here because I've heard this, uh, this used. Love people because, man, when you love them, you're going to put burning coals on their head. Um, that doesn't seem compatible, does it? 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge theologian or anything, but when, when God says, you should love somebody, you, yeah, coals will be on their head if I love them. I don't think that's what uh, the writer was saying. They'll burn up. Yeah, they'll get theirs because if I love them. And, and if, you've, if you've approached this verse with that in your heart, I would say that you're not approaching it with the right intent that the author has. And let me, let me show you a, uh, a potential connection here. You see, uh, Paul is quoting Proverbs chapter 25. Um, in 21 through 22, and that's the whole, uh, it, why it's in quotes here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, the whole part with the coals on his head, he's, he's quoting that verbatim. If you, you can go to Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22, and you can read it for yourself. It's word for word. Uh, I think there's an explanation for this in Leviticus chapter 16. It says this. He's talking about the priest who's about to go into the Holy of Holies and, and worship and serve God. And he says, he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. That's interesting. So, because the priest is, is evil, I mean, he's, he's righteous before God because of God's righteousness, but he's a sinner. That he's to take in burning coals with some incense. And when he gets behind that holy place where, where sinful people aren't allowed, he's to put that on the burning coals and the smoke that comes up will prevent him from dying. kind of changes a little bit how we perceive now uh, Proverbs 25 and then Paul uh, quoting it in Romans. This whole bring burning coals. And, and I would suggest this, and, and uh, we're not here to nitpick and pull everything out, but I would suggest this, that the return, returning of love for good, uh, I'm sorry, the returning of love or good for evil results in an awakening of the person who's committing the evil against you. That says, why in the world am I, I'm mistreating this person. We all know when we're mistreating somebody, right? We know that because we say, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of what I'm giving to this person. Right? That's, that's what scripture tells us. If you, if you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of what you're doing or saying to this person, then, then you're mistreating them. So if you wouldn't want to be in the receiving end of this, you know I wouldn't want to be in the receiving end of this. So I'm mistreating them. Yet I'm mistreating them, and instead they're returning love and kindness to me. And there's something in that transaction that awakens the brain or the spirit to say, this is odd. Why is this person so different? Why is this person so different? And you see, it, it changes something in the atmosphere. It changes something in the unseen. And we know this is true because it's how Christ grabbed our heart and changed us. Right? In Romans chapter 
five verse eight, it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still uh, practicing evil, while we were still believing the lie and far from God, God came and loved on us. And then when we realized this, something happened. And uh, 1 John 4.19 says it clearly. We love because he first loved us. You see, I experienced this love that I wasn't due. I shouldn't have, have received this kind of love, but I, somehow he gave it to me anyway. And that created a change that all of a sudden now, I love. It's amazing how it changes us. It's an amazing concept that when, when, when evil comes against us, when hate comes against us, when wrongdoing comes against us, our response can actually change the, the unseen. It's a weapon of our warfare. A gentleman named Richard Wormbrand talked about in, uh, being in communist Romania and being beaten by the guards. And while the guards were beating him, the pastors would pray specifically for the guard that was beating him. God, I pray that you bless them. I pray that you prosper them. I pray, I pray God, that you would, uh, your light shine upon them, that their children would flourish. I pray as they're being beaten by these guards. And after the fall of communism, they had interviews with some of these guards, and the guards were shaken to the core. They would go home, and some of them described weeping uncontrollably because here they were giving this, this person every bit of their, their hate, and all they got back was love. And it, it just rocked their world. And for a modern-day example, and I want to I I show where you can look to even to today for some close-to-modern-day examples. And you can look to some really incredible men in the black community. You see, some of them looked evil in the eye experienced some really horrific things. And in the end, they realized there was only one way they were going to be able to bring about change. Real change. Not new policies, not new laws, not, not any of this kind of thing, but real change in humanity. And that was love. Booker T. Washington said this, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. He's a man who clearly understood that me returning hate for hate is not going to do anything. And if it never changes them, I'm not going to allow it to change me. And sometimes when we don't return hate for hate, the change necessarily isn't in them, it's here. We're preserving, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow the devil to pull me down to that place. I'm, I'm above that. So if the change never happens to them, it's happening here. Martin Luther King Jr., two of these are very famous to you, I'm sure. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Do you think this was just rhetoric? Do you think he just sat down and thought, hey, I'll pen some really cool saying they're going to tweet about me for generations? I think Martin Luther King experienced this. He said, man, when I return love, I end up turning an enemy into a friend. He didn't just say this because it was a cool thing to say. He said this because he believed it and experienced it. The other one, which is famous as well, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And then someone that's uh, 
still alive, I believe, is John M. Perkins. He wrote, Our love is our witness. Love's the final fight. And I would encourage you, any three of those men, read biographies about them, read their life story. They're, they're men who, who received evil, returned love, and changed, changed a society. History tells us that. Love is a weapon that God has given us that changes the unseen. Lastly, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, which kind of brings us full circle in the Ephesians uh, battle, real battle, uh, it says this. Paul tells him this. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. I love this. Uh, and the fourth one is prayer. Um, prayer is probably the most uh, underrealized uh, source of strength and weapon you have in the unseen world. And the devil fights it the most because it's all in the unseen. You're praying to the unseen, and unseen things happen, and you necessarily don't always know they're happening because you can't see them. But Paul says, uh, When should I pray? On all occasions. Well, what kind of prayer should I pray? All kinds of prayers. Right? You just, he's like, I'm not going to get specific here. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Don't get bogged down in the, in the, in the minutia. Just, just pray. And then in, he repeats himself in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says this. I love it. It's probably the, probably the longest verse in the Bible. Pray continually. I love that the translators, because in the original uh, language, um, they didn't have the little numbers that break it up, that the translators thought, you know what, this is an important verse, let's just make it its own verse. Pray always. Pray continuously, depending on your translation. You say, well, what do you mean pray? And, and prayer's a, a topic for another, a sermon for another day, but I, I just want you to see Watchman Nee, who was, a, who was a writer in prayer and a practitioner of prayer, and he's led so many people in prayer, he wrote this. The purpose of prayer is not to notify God, as if God didn't know what you're praying about, but to express our trust, our faith, our expectation, and our heart desire. Man, if we get this right, so many times we think we have to, our prayer is letting God know what's going on. God, did you know? I need to pray for this so you go over there and do something about it. God's like, oh, i kind of known that's been going on. I knew it was going to go on before you were even born. But no, prayer, prayer does other things too. This isn't all, you know, like I said for another day, but for us in the unseen world and in the battle, it's not to notify God of the battle and what's going on. But when we're expressing our trust in you in the middle of the battle, when I'm ex expressing my faith in the middle of the battle, when I'm expressing my expectation that, God, you got this in the middle of the battle, when I'm expressing my heart desire, Lord, I want to see your best come through, that's prayer. That's, I'm letting God know where I'm at and where my trust is. <clears throat> James 5, 16 tells us this. We already read this, but confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person 
is powerful and effective. By a show of hands in here, how many of you uh, trust in the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and therefore you're going to heaven? Okay. If you have your hand raised, you're a righteous person. If you trust in the fact that Jesus Christ is your only way to heaven and you believe in that and you confess that, like, God, you're my only way, it's, it's because of your grace and mercy, you are righteous. So when it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, don't let the devil lie to you and play with your head and say, well, you know, yesterday I said a bad word and I did this and I mistreated that and I'm not really doing this right. Poo. Poo-poo. That's what we used to say when we were little kids. No, don't believe that. That's poo-poo. Leave it alone. You're righteous. That's you. Your prayers are powerful. Your righteousness, we, guess what? It has nothing to do with you. Your righteousness was, is in Christ. That's what we learned about the, the armor of God. I stand in Christ's righteousness. I am righteous because of what he has done. So therefore, my prayers are powerful and they're effective. So when I pray, I do war. Man, my prayer changes stuff because I'm righteous. Therefore, I'm powerful and effective, which is, uh, here's another Watchman E quote. Prayer enables us to first inwardly overcome the enemy and then outwardly to deal with him. That's good stuff right there. God gives us the power to deal with the devil inside and the devil outside. Stand in your righteousness. Lastly, what does prayer do in in the unseen battle? Uh, Proof that it's powerful and effective. Jesus uh, comes upon a scene where his disciples are are praying over this guy or they're trying to cast this demon out of this person and and they fail and he casts them out and they come in and say, what was the deal? How come we couldn't do that? And Jesus replies with this in Mark 9, 29. This kind can only come out by prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective to where through prayer he just cast a demon out of a person who was oppressing, who was lying to, who was manipulating, who was distorting somebody's belief and truth and all of those things filling them with evil spirits and desires, through prayer, Jesus cast it out. How many know that's a powerful weapon in our fight against the unseen battle? In fact, uh, E.M. Bounds, another giant in the faith as it relates to prayer, said this. First of all, his look was a pretty, like, when I Googled him and I saw a look, I was like, wow, he seems like an intense kind of guy. Like, if I was the devil, I'd look at him and go, well, I'm right, I'm getting out of here. Right, right. Just his intensity. He says, The prayer closet is the battlefield of the church, its citadel, the scene of heroic and unearthly conflicts. Man, if we, uh, I'm a sucker for like macho guy movies, like, you know, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan. I know they're rated R. I'm sorry. It's just 
pulls me in. Just the storyline of, of a heroic who fights a battle and comes through and wins. I mean, that's why my Rocky series are my all-time favorite movies, because Rocky's down, but in the, you know, in the end, he comes through. I'm just a sucker. I don't care about the acting. I don't care about the special effects. It's the story that grabs me, right? If we could get this down, that the prayer closet, my prayer life, is where heroic battles are, are fought and won. Hmm. It's a weapon. Let me wrap this up and conclude. The four weapons mentioned here might not seem to you like weapons. In fact, maybe they've received a few eye rolls or cynical smirks. I know when you talk about them in public with people like, oh yeah, I love somebody, right? Oh, pray, like that's going to do a lot of good, right? We've heard all those kinds of things. And when we view it through that lens, we're looking for them to, that, that to manifest itself in the scene. And eventually it will. But our battle is in the unseen, which means you can't see it. So you may do these things and go, I'm not seeing anything. Mm-hmm. Because it's in the unseen. You say, well, why should I do them? Because you have faith and you trust the character of God who told you this is how you fight the battle. And eventually, things come around and you see some change and you go, ah, I prayed about that. I loved that person. And man, there's been a big difference. Sometimes we're graced with seeing the change. But the war with the unseen is fought with different weapons. And if we want to see evil overcome in our lives and in the lives of others, making use of repentance, confession, love, and prayer will be necessary. You can't win the battle with the unseen without doing these four things in your life. It's not possible. Thank you, Lord, for making us aware of and giving these things to us. And when you do these things, they actually do have an effect on you. You feel when you've repented, when you're confessing either good or you're confessing the truth, right? When you love on somebody, you walk away, whether it was received or not, there's something inside of you that you go, I did the right thing in prayer. Um, I know Gene asked for the mic for the end of service, but I want to say a few words to you before he comes up. Uh, about the election in the upcoming week, okay? Just, just as pastor, um, uh, I felt like it was necessary for me uh, to say a few things. Many people don't talk about politics or religion because of the division it creates. And if you're here today and you look at the political landscape and the bickering and the fighting and the posturing and all those kinds of things and you think to yourself, this isn't how it should be. We should want to work towards the, the unification of one country, that everyone's doing what's right for the country. And you're sick of it because of that. That's normal. That's right. You feel right. But I want you to know, as a, as a Christian person, people who are non-Christians feel the same thing about religion because of how we fight with each other. I don't want anything to do with religion. All I do is bicker and fight and posture, and I, I don't want any of that in my life. So it should be a lesson for us as we stand back and we should say, uh, the church 
should be leading the charge in what we want to see in our country. Loving each other, respecting each other. We can disagree without hating each other. You know, we should be leading the charge theologically. Uh, we should be leading the charge politically. We should be leading the charge racially. We should be, re- all of the ease. we should be, re- like, we should have the answer. And so, I won't preach there. Anyway, this week, on Wednesday, or some point during the week, uh, some of us are going to be disappointed. And you say, well, how do you know everybody in this church is voting the same pastor? Because in my home, there are four registered voters, and we're not voting the same. So maybe it's just in my home there's going to be disappointment. But all four people in that home will also come to this church, so therefore there will be some of us <laughs> disappointed on Wednesday. Right? And probably, I assume, because we are a diverse church in the sense of beliefs and what's important to us and these kinds of things, that, that will determine how we vote. How do we handle that? And that's what I want to give you a couple reminders and pointers to. Because... Um, Our society doesn't know how. As a Christian, you need to remember this, that God's work goes on regardless of who's in power or who's in office. History tells us that. I mean, the Roman Emperor Nero burned Christians as light torches. How many know that's evil? I don't care which party you're for, the opposite party that which you believe in is not that evil as much as you'd like to think they are. So, and God's work continued. Guess what? The kingdom of God spread to the entire world as a result of what was happening. So, God's work continues regardless of who's in power or office. Don't let your mind think that if your party or your person doesn't get in, oh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's not true. Second thing, Romans 8.28 tells us this. God can and will use all things for his purposes. You may not see it right away. You might wonder how in the world could God use that person or that party or that situation or whatever. I don't know either. That's why I'm not God. And that's why you're not God. But God says he can and will use all things for his purposes. So trust that even if you, man, I'm just... uh, I'm I'm disappointed in this. How is this? Pause. Deep breath. God can use this. Okay? Thirdly, a more practical thing. Most people uh, make their decisions based on two or three things that are very important to them. Okay? So, a couple of uh, assumptions I don't want you to make. Don't assume that just because somebody endorses a particular candidate or a party that they endorse every single thing about that candidate or that party. Okay? Because most of us have just a couple of things that are really important to us. And those things could be different depending on how you were raised, where you were raised, where you are in society. All of those things, they become important to you. Just like I don't want to be... thought to think that I represent either, either the party and all they think about. Republican or Democrat. Right? I don't want anyone to say, oh, you must believe everything they believe because that would be 
not true about me. Second, don't assume that because somebody voted differently than you, that they, only, they don't care about the things you care about. Right? Oh, you voted so-and-so, you must be, you know, you must hate women. Or, you know, you must be against making money. Or you must, like, we just, we let our brains go to these weird places. Don't assume that people don't care about the things you care about just because they voted differently. They're voting through the lens of the two or three things that are really important to them. Let me wrap it up as guys are coming up. Real practical. Don't let disappointment turn to dismay. It's okay to be disappointed. If my person I vote for doesn't get in, I'll be disappointed. But I'm not going to be dismayed. Because God is still God. God's work is still going to go forward. God can use the things that I think are terrible for his good. Uh, you know what? I'm just, I'm just me. Don't let victory give you a reason to gloat. So those of you who are victorious on Wednesday, know that there are people you love who care about the same things you care about and uh, don't use it as an opportunity to gloat. That's not loving. Trust God's character. Love people. Do the Lord's work. Regardless if your candidate or your party wins or loses. That's our mandate. And keep that in perspective. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you gave us uh, very clear guidance in your word about where the real battle is. It's with evil, it's not with people. And that there's particular stances we should take, and that's the armor that you've given us. And then there's, there's ways that we can actually engage in the battle to make a difference. And Lord, through repentance, confession, love, and prayer, we can actually make a difference in the battle the battle in our own lives and heart, and the battle for others. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of what was said today, that you're, you would lead us and you would guide us in these things so that we can, we can uh, move the kingdom forward and the rule and reign of God in, on this earth. Lord, deposit within us a trust in your character. Deposit within us a love for people, even those who are nothing like us. And Lord, deposit with us the desire to do your work over anything else. We praise you and we love you in your name. Amen. Amen.